Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. And no, I'm I'm sorry, I can't tell you which. It's 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 really your choice or your I suppose your determination via observation to make. But in any event, welcome back to a freedom of ideas. Last time, we started our discussion on John Stuart Mill. We tested out some of his ideas uh, concerning particularly when it is justifiable to restrict another person's freedom. And let me give you just the key moment in a quote that we've been working from, not the entire thing that we've done thus far, we haven't done the whole thing thus far, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, um, but let me just give you the key moment of what we've re reviewed so far. Quote, the sole end for which mankind are warranted, individually or collectively, in interfering with the liberty of action of any of their number is self-protection that the only purpose for which power can rightfully be exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others, unquote. And as we started to fiddle with this idea and, and to sort of road test it, if you will, we came to a pretty simple conclusion, a simple but one that we're going to carry through for the rest of this series. As we get into this business of making and enforcing laws, uh, taking each other to court to prove that harm has been done, you know, having entire justice systems, all these other pieces, basically any point at which we begin to sort of actively involve what we would call civil society, this external, uh, somewhat vague grouping of public and private things called civil society. Whenever we are trying to involve that in our considerations of freedom, we're always dealing in what we might call, quote unquote, small r rational systems. So by small r in this case, we mean not rational in a way that you know, one of our philosopher buddies that we've been talking about, not, not the way they're rational necessarily, not that level of, of rigor and this sort of painful, uh, nearly perfect logic that they try and apply at every turn. But still, you know, it, you go, you listen to the proceedings of, of any court anywhere whatsoever, and it basically depends on stuff like, of course, human language, basic notions of causality, uh, this event caused this response, uh, and that's how we determine where responsibility lies, all, all that kind of good stuff. And the way we use these systems as well, that this all comes down to this kind of, you know, basic small r rationality that, that is the way that kind of both the structure and the currency of all of these systems and the way they play out in our lives. But, you know, we did some scenarios last time. We, t we talked through some quote unquote real world examples of, okay, if we take this idea and mill, how does it play out? If we put, we put it uh, here into this situation, you know, we had uh, lots of, lots of you calling me a jerk in the street, which was hurtful, you know, fine, hurtful, but I, I, you know, got over it, got over it. I'm back here, pick myself up. We're ready to go. So let's look at a different scenario and kind of see where it leads us. Take the following example. Say that we live in adjoining apartments. And I say that your music is so loud that it disturbs me in my home. In which case, of course, if you just take that statement on its own, you are infringing on my rights. 
Well, you, by contrast, say that I complain no matter how loud or low the volume of the music is set, and within reason you do of course have the right to listen to music in your own apartment. So, of those two perspectives, which is correct? What principle, probably a better question, what principle can we develop in the abstract that will kind of guide us in meeting these kinds of moments on a level of universal applicability? And what rule can we use? What rule can we add to what we heard from, from Mill up above about essentially the only reason we ever restrict freedom is to prevent harm? Well, I, you know, I think we can all agree that just that statement isn't really helping us quite enough in this scenario. So what additional principle do we need to develop that is going to add some clarity, going to help us kind of see our way through this dispute that we're seeing here? You know, as of course we're looking in that case, we're looking for something that's going to raise to the level of, we would say universality, right? Because philosophy is always looking for universal application to the greatest extent possible for any one of the principles, ideas, thoughts that we want to apply in situations like this. Because in this case, what we have so far, our two apartment dwellers, right? All we have so far are two subjects, two kind of perspectives pulling against each other. And there really isn't going to be a way to clearly define right and wrong in this case more likely, there's simply going to be two varying shades of wrong, and certainly nothing we can say or think about this that's going to shine a brighter or a better light on the essential nature of freedom and responsibility as it's playing itself out in this, you know, admittedly, seemingly somewhat mundane perspective. But you get the point of why this is a concern, right? That um, we, We've got these two varying... Uh, very different uh, notions of what constitutes harm in this case. So, so what do we do? What, who, who is the one actually at fault? Who is the one being harmed? And how do we move forward? There's a fairly well-known practice amongst navigators and, you know, others who rely on what I think I'm old enough to call real maps, you know, maps that are uh, made of paper that do not talk to you and that do not somehow inherently have any idea what coffee shops are near you. So say I'm on a boat, you know, and I'm offshore with nothing but a compass and a paper map, and I'm trying to figure out where I am. In this case, say I, I can identify one landmark on shore, right? It says, so there's a, say there's a lighthouse or a particular uh, landscape feature that I know, okay, I can see that on shore and I can, I can identify it on my map and I can take a bearing of that landmark with my compass. That, that's going to help me, certainly. That's good. That's very helpful. But if I need to know exactly where I am, exactly where I am, I'm actually still out of luck. I have no way of knowing in this case how far I am from the landmark I've identified. I know what direction the landmark is in. I don't know how far away from it I am. Thus, I do not know my exact location. I know the angle I need to follow to move directly toward or away from the landmark. But, you know, kind of much like our, our, our frustrated apartment dwellers here, I have only two points of reference. In this case, in my hypothetical boat analogy here, I have my own location. So I, I know where I am, even if I can't locate that on a map. And of course, I know where the landmark is, and I can locate that on a map. But all I can really do is kind of draw this line between them. 
And thus, I have no certain principle by which to clearly fix my, my location in, in uh, essentially in the dimensions that I need to locate myself on a map, even though, of course, in some sense, I know where I am personally at that moment. So what I need in this case is a second landmark, which is actually a third point of reference. So with three points of reference, with two landmarks that I, I can identify, I can find on a map, and of course, you know, with me, my own location that I know is the common point between those two landmarks, I can take bearings on, the, on those two distant points and sort of therefore triangulate the, you know, three positions, triangulate my own position in a way that simply isn't possible when I only have one other reference point aside from my own location. And that, I think, is what we need here. And, and yet, and admitting, we've only, you know, we're, I, I'm, we're halfway through one paragraph of Mill, so we can't exactly judge his entire opus on what we've done so far. But if we take this as kind of a thesis statement, which I think it is that, that Mill's put forward here, one of the weaknesses of the formulation that we've heard so far is that we, we end up, we frequently come uh, to this exact sort of juncture where we really only have two points of reference to work from. And, and I should say as well, what Mill is putting together for us here is actually a, a pretty frequently stated kind of political, uh, philosophical axiom for what personal freedom should look like, or, or rather when it is justifiable to remove, remove personal freedom. But it doesn't quite get us past a certain point, thus my analogy about triangulation and navigation. So this one navigational bearing, that I should be free to do what I want, until I begin to infringe upon you, if we can summarize it that way, that's not sufficient for us to plot our course moving forward. It's really only two points of reference. It's me and it's you. I can't triangulate anything with only those two points of reference. Our society and our social and economic connections and interdependencies, um, the, this is all far too complex to only use these two guiding points in our overall uh, kind of philosophical navigational process, if you will. Which, now, please note, and let's be careful here, this is very different than me saying that we need to abandon the principles we have so far, abandon what Mill has told us so far. We don't want to do that, right? We have our two points of reference. It's not that the two points of reference are wrong. It's just that they're incomplete. So, for example, when I'm out on my boat and I'm taking my bearings, and by the way, I do not have a boat and I do not know how to take bearings, but, you know, set that aside for the moment, the fact that the bearings of a single reference point are not enough to plot my position, that doesn't mean that I throw the, the one bearing away, right? It just means that I need something more to build on. So let's look back to our apartment dwellers, uh, the conflicting music lover and noise hater. Ideally, there's some sort of defining cultural norm or value, say uh, perhaps something particular to your community, particular to your society, maybe it's particular to the entire civilization, Whatever it is, perhaps we hope that there's going to be some sort of cultural norm or value that's going to act as that additional guiding point, that additional bearing for us. So, for example, if I live on the main street of an historic tourist town, 
it's likely that I've agreed to some kind of uh, to some kind of contract to certain standards of cleanliness and upkeep for the outside of my house, right? Because having a dilapidated eyesore on the main street when the whole kind of purpose and livelihood of this town is is to try and lure tourists in to look at all this beautiful stuff, well, that's that's something. This notion of having an eyesore on the main street. That's something the community came together to identify as a threat to the common livelihood. So if I don't like living under those rules, well, in this case, that's, that's just tough. I knew the rules when I bought the house. I do presumably benefit from the situation I'm in, in, in one or more ways. And really what that rule is is an expression of this common community sentiment, this agreed upon, if you will, if we can go back to our our analogy, this agreed upon third point of reference, this third point of navigation that's going to help us in, in a dispute that could otherwise be about, well, it's Corey. Corey says it's his house. He can do whatever he wants on his front porch. And the community's kind of angry because it's hurting them. But Still, it is Corey's house, so it could just be this sort of two-way struggle. We'd be right back in this no-navigation way forward. It's just this kind of tug-of-war between these two seemingly equal points of view, when in fact, in this case, not only do we have a, a community norm, if you will, to refer back to, an additional point of navigation, in this case, of course, it's codified in actual rules that are probably built right into my, my deed and all the rest of that kind of good stuff. But equally, right, as we think about this, we can't apply this same exact rule to every house everywhere, right? There are plenty of places in the world where I can maintain my house or not exactly as I see fit, regardless of the opinion of anyone else. So while the specific rule is different, so, you know, in the one community, in my beautiful uh, historic community, the rule is that I need my house to look as beautiful as the community says it should, um, whereas in another community, I might not have any such rule. So the specific rules are different, different in either cases, but the principle is actually basically the same, that there are prevailing norms that apply to my location or my situation or my community or the civilization I'm in, the society I'm in, whatever I want to say about it. However, you know, and even whether it's explicitly expressed as a rule in the example that we used, or is it just something that's kind of tacit, nonetheless, regardless, I can use that, again, that third point of navigation to call on it and help to both guide my behavior and also to cultivate my expectations for the behavior of others, right? And all of this is great, but it is somewhat limited. If our two apartment-dwelling disputants lived in some kind of, say, Spartan-like society where everyone was raised toward a common profession, you know, with this, of course, I'm referring to Sparta in ancient Greece. Uh, That was, uh, they were famous for having built their entire society as a sort of factory for the creation of warriors. So suffice to say, there was a common worldview in, in Sparta, right, that every citizen bought into, or or at least there was for for a, a certain period of their history, a common reference point of explicit values that pretty much everyone agreed to as part of their being uh, members of that community, right? Well, imagine if everyone in that community 
that our apartment dwellers live in. Imagine that every one of them was raised that with the belief that a uh, librarian is the most respected profession to which any citizen can aspire. So in this theoretical society, you know, every set of eyeglasses would be sold, uh, just automatically attached to a lanyard. Uh, there, there'd be a town ordinance that reads only hush. And, you know, it's in that case, if, if this is the society we live in, we can imagine which way the guiding norms of that society are going to point us in this particular dispute, right? Uh, it's never going to be on the side of the person wanting to listen to music. That's never going to work. Equally, but conversely, if we live in a community that reveres, say, hair metal bands, or, you know, if we want to be maybe a, a little more realistic than saying we should have an entire community uh, built around the notion that that sort of white snake is the, the, uh, the pinnacle of all human society, if we want to be a little more realistic than that, say, uh, for example, that our disputants live in a community that profits from being a popular spring break destination or a, a vacation destination even for a good chunk, of the, good chunk of the year where it's usually younger folks that are coming and vacationing. Well, in that case, of course, in, in either one of those cases, uh, either our vacation community or our white snake community, the noisier tenant is likely to win any appeal to the prevailing sensibilities of the community, right? Now, there's another way to talk about this rather nebulous idea I keep referring to, uh, you know, but the, the norms and the partially tacit, uh, partially explicit expectations of any given community or society. The term worldview is commonly used to refer to this idea. The Cambridge Dictionary of Philosophy gives us a, the following definition, so let's check that out. Quote, a worldview constitutes an overall perspective on life that sums up what we know about the world, how we evaluate it emotionally, and how we respond to it volitionally, unquote. And by the way, volitionally roughly equates to willingly or, or by our choice. So now that, that's fine as the definition goes, but it doesn't really fully capture the scope that I'd like to portray here and that, it, that I'd like us to be assuming as we discuss this, I think, very broad, very sweeping term. To me, a worldview constitutes all of the details of our learned experience that we've soaked up as a consequence of our time in the world. It's what we've learned from our parents and our teachers and others in the community. It includes ways of responding to the world that we saw on television. It, it's all of the many, many ways that we just know that someone born in the 1970s in America, for example, that we know that someone born in the 1970s in America is going to approach the world with vastly, vastly different assumptions and instincts than someone born in China in 1370. And if we got those two people together, they would probably be able to identify many of those differences, right? But, but certainly not all of them. Many of them are so deeply enmeshed in our way of thinking about the world that we simply assume them and we adjust to them the way we would, you know, gravity or the relative oxygen content in the air. If those were to suddenly change very drastically, of course, it's going to change our lives pretty significantly. Those are very important factors, and yet we pretty much don't think about them on a day-to-day -day basis. They're not part of something that we feel we need to consciously consider about the world and our relationship to it. And importantly, 
Though, you know, to people of the same age, say one of whom was born in New Jersey and the other in upstate New York. Now, these two folks might, of course, have a lot in common, a lot more in common than either one of them would have with, you know, a, a Chinese fellow who was born in 1370. And yet they will, of course, have differences also, this person from New York and this person from New Jersey, even if those differences are somewhat more, you know, we might say cosmetic. So this is a very wide-ranging idea, is my point. This notion of worldviews is very wide-ranging, and it constitutes a lot of a lot of really what we are. But in any event, let's step back away from that and back to our main narrative here. Now, if we can set aside these examples, you know, these examples where a clearly understood cultural norm, where a worldview gives us that kind of third factor for our navigation, if we don't have that, if we don't have some factor that's very relevant to the question at hand, then we're essentially left with a tug of war between two conflicting sets of priorities, your desire to listen to music and my desire for peace and quiet. Again, absent some third factor, or if, you know, either either of us were to take our demands to some ridiculous extent, like my demanding absolute, perfect, total quiet, I don't want to hear a single footstep from the person who lives upstairs from me, despite the fact that the floors are very thin, or on the flip side, you should be able to listen to your music 24 hours a day as absolutely loud as it can possibly go, and why should I possibly have any justification for infringing on your freedom? If we step back from those kinds of extreme examples, and if we don't have some other third factor to consider in all this, there's really no clear answer to this kind of question that we can elevate to what we would call a uh, something with universal applicability, a principle that we could apply in any case equally uh, that would really guide us no matter what the situation, no matter what the scenario was. So the answer, to the extent that there is one, and admitting that this is really not very philosophical, but the answer for our two apartment dwellers most likely must be that they you know, simply have to work it out. They have to talk to one another. They have to set times and volume levels that will work for everybody. Do a little negotiation, maybe even write up a simple kind of contract. Or perhaps, as I say, maybe they just want to continue to escalate their feud until something happens that actually constitutes very tangible illegality, you know, in which case someone will at least be very wrong, even if no one has ended up being all that right. But this glib summary brings me back to our central point. Reason is woven into all of this. The human capacity to think, the human capacity to use logic and language to create at least semi-cogent, semi-coherent, semi-consistent systems that guide or dictate our day-to-day -day lives and give us some rules and some guide points to depend on. Now, continue with the fact that reason, again, small r reason, uh, really just the ability to use language in a way that recognizes causation and, and you might say limited syllogism in most cases. In that limited vein, reason is necessary to the way this system conducts its business. To make a complaint against you calling me a jerk, for example, I must be able to use language to an extent that I can do so. I have to be able to draw causal links between your actions and consequences in the world. 
and to process that complaint and to make some form of judgment on it, the system must be, again, just small r rational, not capital R rational, not like Immanuel Kant or Descartes, but small r rational, just rational enough to factor these different ideas and this sort of causal story that presumably these two different causal stories that the two sides are telling, just enough to balance those two and render some kind of judgment. Now, as we move forward, you're going to see me quibbling with folks like Mill and, you know, later like Locke and, and a number of other philosophers in this tradition that perhaps they put a bit too much faith in reason, particularly, I would say, in a certain kind of reason. Now, Mill, for example, and, and we'll see this in the episodes coming up, we're going to spend a lot of time with Mill, and we're actually going to go past this one paragraph that we've been working on thus far. But as we do that, we're going to see that Mill has really a, a great faith in reason as something that is almost like a force in the world. As if, for example, if you present a strong enough rational argument to me then my mind will almost certainly, almost inevitably, be changed by the force of that rational argument, as if I had no choice but to yield to the sort of billy club force of this superior rationality. Which, now, perhaps you'll agree, uh, not to make any sort of snap judgments without backing them up, but perhaps you'll agree, as we consider the way reason operates in our contemporary society, perhaps you'll agree that, that that's not exactly... You know, at least that's not my day-to-day -day experience. But again, let's set that to the side because we are most certainly going to be coming back to it. So just one last thing to say as we think about the role, again, of reason in the way these systems, be they justice or legal or actually many of the other systems of civil society, as we think about the way they operate in relation to reason, one last thing to say about them Reason is also foundational to the way we dole out punishment and create restrictions on behavior within these systems. One of the things that happens in the process of being punished in our legal system, or when to put it like Mill would put it, the way he put it back in the beginning of the last episode, when we see fit to compel behaviors from another person through use of force, it typically takes the form of removing or at least dismissing that person's rational agency, their capacity to make choices based on their own rational processes. If we're talking about our apartment dwellers, perhaps the punishment is the removal of your right to play music, or the removal of my right to keep complaining about it. In the instance of a property dispute, perhaps you have your right to choose to go where you want to go restricted so that you no longer legally have the option to choose to go near me or my property. In the instance of a more serious crime, your capacity to choose most anything at all, you know, where you live, where you go, what you eat, what you do or do not do at any given time of the day, that all could be removed for you. Certainly, you know, to this example, a standard American prison, it doesn't remove all of your freedom to choose, but it really takes away the big ones, right? The, the big ticket items that we're probably most fond of on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, why go on about all this? Why do I keep coming back to this seemingly pretty straightforward and simplistic idea that, of course, the, the fundamental currency of all these systems is basically reason? Well, there are three answers to that. 
First, as we said, it's to emphasize the many connections between our concept of freedom and our concept of rationality. The two ideas, again, we've said it a bunch of times, the two ideas are inextricably linked. And the examples given here don't even begin to cover the extent of that linkage. Every expression of freedom, ultimately, is related to our capacity for reason, as I believe we will see again and again and again moving forward. So then, our second reason, stemming directly from the first one, is that if these two ideas are so tightly intertwined, then mustn't it follow that our understanding of human reason, of human rationality, or our misunderstanding of human rationality, that that must surely impact our understanding of freedom? And we can put a pin in that. We're going to be coming back to it in the immediate term and then again and again and again for pretty much as long as this uh, series keeps going. Now, finally, if we think of rationality as the sort of, again, the currency of freedom, well, then it becomes extremely important to notice how much rationality we assume in another person or in another group of people. Because reason isn't like normal currency uh, in that the amount that we, we effectively, practically possess in society, it's not absolute, right? Uh, let me put that a different way. I may have five actual American dollars in my pocket, right? Now, the, the value of that $5 bill may vary based on the market or, or whatever else, but it remains fundamentally a $5 bill. You can't wander over and just tell me that I only have a nickel in my pocket and simply that you're saying it simply makes it true. However, something very much like that can happen when we look at the way reason operates in our interactions with other people, particularly between people and overall systems of power. Now, take the following example. If I am in a position of power, now, which I, I'm not, of course, but, you know, maybe just for once, maybe just, just let me have this one, right? There's no harm. It's just having a little game here. Corey's in a position of power. So, fine. Little example, little thought experiment. So, if I am in a position of great power, of real society-wide influence, and I decide that you are not capable of rational decision-making, well, what happens next? Well, chances are that along with your perceived capacity for reason, your actual capacity for free choosing will then quickly be removed from you. Perhaps you'll be restrained, or in a, a less extreme example, perhaps you'll simply find that whenever you're in a dispute, particularly a dispute with, with some of these overall systems of, of power and legality and freedom in our civil society, whenever you're in a dispute, it will become all but impossible for you to voice your side of a given argument. Because how can we trust you, right? This person of great authority, Corey, this person of great power, has said that you do not possess a true rational perspective, that you are not capable of reasoning the way the rest of us can. So how can we trust you? How can we trust your judgments? How can we trust the narrative that you explain to us as you're trying to explain your perspective in any given dispute? How can we give those arguments any credence whatsoever? Really, we'll simply get to the point of having to decide things for you, right? 
as you are not in a position to make your own choices because, once again, you don't have the reason aspect of the equation. Remember, reason to choice to responsibility. Well, if we don't think you're capable of reason, if we think you're totally incapable of that, that takes away the entire causal chain. That takes away your capacity to make choices the way we believe they should be made. And then, of course, after that, of course, you're, you're no longer responsible because you're not making choices. So the entire equation kind of gets removed from you and is removed from the way we view your place in society. And this leads us to a fact that we should not like, either as philosophers or as citizens. In these systems, the way we're describing them, reason, again, becomes a kind of currency. A currency that we as individual rational agents possess and quote-unquote spend within these systems. But of course, we all know that for a variety of reasons, we all start off in this process with different amounts of this currency. So, for example, being very frank, I am a white, straight male with a consistent and satisfactory income and a fixed address. And now let's pause for a moment as we're about to embark on what will be an ongoing conversation that I would broadly describe as being on prejudice and bigotry. Now, in the next series of episodes, we'll be diving much more deeply into what I think we could rightly call racism and cultural and ethnic chauvinism and the violence that was committed in the name of these attitudes by Europeans throughout the entire course of colonialism and imperialism. The broader conversation we're going to have today, however, I think we could accurately say that it covers most or really all forms of prejudice, including bigotry, racism, sexism, what we would now call ableism, uh, you know, prejudice related to, to income inequalities, prejudice related to whether or not you whether you're housed. In short, most all of what we would broadly label as prejudice and bigotry of, I would think, almost every sort. But I think that requires a bit of defining and clarifying before we proceed. So first, it's important that we recognize when we talk in this sweeping fashion about all, or, or at least I think the vast majority of forms of bigotry and prejudice that we, that we are by definition, when we do that, when we talk in this really broad way, as I'm proposing to do right now, by definition to do that, we're overlooking reams of important scholarship on racism as distinct from sexism, as distinct from anti-Semitism, as distinct from ableism, as di distinct from prejudice around sexual identity, as distinct from prejudice around income and whether or not you have a fixed address, and etc., etc., etc. So by making some of these glib sweeping observations that I want to make about the nature of prejudice generally, I want to make very clear, very, very clear, I am by no means meaning to dismiss all of that scholarship. In fact, I, I think we'll find that we're going to be diving much more deeply into those areas of thought in this series and in the next series, uh, and we're going to be depending on these scholars to do so. I don't want to do that yet, however. I don't think we can do that yet, as we need to keep this conversation as broad as possible for the moment, which means speaking in some of these very kind of sweeping and generalized terms that do not do justice to these 
various forms of scholarship that are extremely strong and extremely uh, worthwhile. Now, the reason for that, the reason we need to to be so broad and sweeping, and, and the reason for even raising this subject in this context, is that I find it's, it's surprisingly rare to talk about these kinds of issues. Again, prejudice, bigotry, racism, sexism, etc., 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 when we're talking about these classical philosophers and their thinking. Now, on the one hand, we can see why this is. None of these folks really address these issues. I should say that aside from Mill, uh, who's uh, in his time was clear-headed enough to be what I would describe as as an early vocal feminist. So that is an exception, but that's a different work of Mill's, and and it's in any event, it's well worth reading. It is not what we're talking about here today. But as a consequence of the fact that these folks typically do not have these conversations, typically do not delve into these kinds of ideas, we end up having these discussions of freedom and how we ensure my freedom without restricting yours. And we talk about our faculty for reason to determine how we best proceed. And in my opinion, we do this all, we have these conversations in this kind of imaginary, magical fantasy land where we just kind of assume that every human subject is basically equal and that we're all granted the basically the same potential for having our voices heard. So if there's any inequality, it's because, well, Corey's just not rash, as rational as Bill is, therefore uh, Corey's perspective doesn't count for as much. These, you know, these the, the, the ways of thinking that these philosophers really worked with just weren't built to understand the the very tangible realities of prejudice and how it affects people's placements within these systems and thus how it affects these systems as a whole. So what I'm trying to do here is to use this lens that that we've proposed, the the notion that these systems are are basically reason-driven, again, small r reason-driven. So I want to use that idea as a way to begin to be able to talk about prejudice and bigotry within these philosophical models of society in a way that I think, I think, is both accurate generally and which then can link these these discussions of the dynamics of prejudice with the basic assumptions and, and, and the workings of these philosophers and their philosophical systems. These philosophers who, again, I think serve as the foundational pieces of most of our own thinking on these issues, whether we know it or like it or not. Now, we're going to see in the next episode why, even if we don't find this kind of conversation illuminating, and and I I hope it is clear that I I do, and I believe there's something of value to be discussed here— uh, and I think it's necessary to begin to, to pull some of these philosophers, if you will, kind of pull them out of the drawing room and pull them into the light of day, pull them into the real world, complete with its its many injustices and and its its many realities that do not operate purely on principle, as these folks would prefer to do. But even if we didn't think that way, even if we didn't kind of want to move in that direction naturally, which again, I believe there's real value in doing, linking this classical way of thinking about these issues that is so foundational to the rest of our thinking, 
linking them with some of these realities that these folks never talked about. But even if we didn't want to do that, we're going to see in the next episode of this series how Mill pretty much forces our hand, how we, we simply would have to be sticking our head in the sand to not try to reconcile these ways of thinking with some of the realities that they typically did not consider. With that, I'm going to continue. We're going to dive back into the, the narrative line that we were on. Uh, but I just wanted to define some of our terms there, lest this, this uh, come off entirely the, the wrong way. So, again, to get back to the, the statement that brought us, brought us to this little caveat, I am a white straight male, consistent and satisfactory income, fixed address, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That means that before I have done anything at all in society, either good or bad, that means that I am assumed to have a workable, valid, rational perspective. My word in society will count. And frankly, it will count in exactly the way that it should. No more and no less then as the rational perspective of one presumably basically trustworthy human subject until proven otherwise. Now, of course, if we look at the recent events, particularly in, in this country and in, in a number of others now, we can see that this is increasingly becoming an untrue statement, that, that people are given, I would say, far more leeway than probably they should be based on their identity in certain circumstances. I think everyone knows what I'm referring to. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now, although, of course, it's a very important one to consider. Just understand, as I'm saying all this, I do understand that there's that exception on the one side. And then, of course, I understand that on the other side of this statement that, yeah, this all works very well for me based on the identity that I just described to you. I am certainly well aware that that is a that's a certain set of privileges that not everyone is is privy to. I absolutely get that, and that is exactly the point that I'm trying to make with all this. But but I will uh, once again here continue. So again, I am respected within these systems. I, I'd say I, I'm respected enough within them not to simply be swallowed by them, right? Not to simply be subsumed by them. On, on the flip side, presumably, if everything is working the way it should, I can't just go raging around my, my little Montana town with impunity, knowing that whatever I do to anyone else, I will always get the benefit of the doubt. For me, these systems work as well as we hope they should most of the time. They don't give me too much leeway to, to be harmful, but they don't automatically presume that my perspective is invalid and thus do unjust harm to me. But, as I said, we also know that my experience, again, my straight, white, middle-class, male experience of these systems, my experience of these systems is hardly universal. Numerous aspects of identity. Race, ethnicity, gender, sexual identity, income, whether or not we have a fixed address, whether or not I have challenges related to mental health or, or other disabilities, and on, and I'm only scratching the surface of how these different identity pieces play out in, play out in society. But each of these aspects of identity, many, many more, make it so that these systems and the people in and around them do not afford the same legitimate rational perspective 
and rational stances to many people as they do to me. So if, for example, I'm in a situation where I can simply explain myself to someone in law enforcement, you know, I can rest assured in that situation. If I have to talk to someone in law, law enforcement, I can rest assured that my explanations will be taken more or less on their merits. I can take it for granted that these systems will basically work for me in the way that they should. And that, sadly, you know, we, we might say shockingly, if we were not perhaps growing so numb to the obviousness of this, uh, but, but that fact that I can trust these systems and that I can trust that they will regard my rational perspective of worthy of consideration, again, that is not a universal privilege within these systems. Now, here again, I'm talking about a set of issues that I assume are not new to any of us. Of course, as we said before, I'm talking about racism, bigotry, prejudice of, of, of all varieties here. Our ever more frequently common responses to identities that in some way differ from our own. Now, one lens through which to consider these issues that I think is particularly illustrative that kind of murky borderline that we have always maintained between criminality and mental health. And now let's pause again so that I can lay a very short bit of groundwork on our discussion on mental health, a discussion that, as with all these discussions, we, we will be coming back to because I believe it's, it is both very important and it is very illustrative. In essence, there are three ways that we can talk about mental health. The first way, and the way that is most appropriate in our day-to-day -day lives and society, the only way that's appropriate in our day-to-day -day lives and society, is to talk about mental health as another feature of personhood, one of the many features of personhood that are out there that we should all understand and accept as exactly what they are. Again, possible features of our personhood. It is one that in many cases that, of course, this feature of person, it, it, it creates very real challenges for people who experience it. It, all, it often does. But not, to be clear, challenges that somehow mean that the person who experiences mental health challenges is somehow no longer a person in the way that I'm a person or you're a person or anyone else else not facing some of these challenges would be considered to be. Mental health is an aspect of the human experience. We should all do a better job of understanding, first of all, whether, whether we directly experience it or not. And we should do that so that we can do a better job of simply relating to the people who experience this. And I'm saying all this, uh, understanding that many of the folks listening would identify themselves that way. I identify myself that way as well. So you know, I tend to think that this whole us versus them, us and them distinction that we typically level on discussions around mental health is somewhat antiquated, but the discussion of mental health as it practically applies to our personhood and to society is one of, you know, again, this is just another aspect of personhood that we have to think about and understand, but it certainly does not detract from the extent to which we regard people who experience it as being people just like everybody else is in any event. So that's, that's, that's way number one to think about mental health. The second way is to consider mental health issues in, in light of the history of our thinking about these issues. 
And that history, to be perfectly frank, is grim. And that history is also very, very recent. And I'm sure for many people, very much alive up to this day. Now, that history includes sweeping judgments, like calling all varieties of mental health, quote unquote, madness, which of course we know is an absolutely ludicrous term that doesn't have any grounding in reality. It's purely a prejudicial term. It includes, if we go, go back far enough, it includes the assumption of, of possession by demons. And it certainly includes, up until our own very, very recent history, and in many cases, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure this, this history is not behind us. I'm sure this is very true up to this day, although it certainly should not be. It includes a system of quote-unquote care in which people experiencing these challenges were first segregated from society, often for much or all of their lives, and second, in that segregated setting, they were given forms of quote-unquote treatments that we should never allow even as punishments, which in fact is exactly what they were. This history, like much of the history of our treatment of people with disabilities generally, is a shameful one that, again, I would say not only echoes up to this day, uh, but more accurately, I would say that we have just barely woken up from this history, and in many cases, we probably have not. Now, the final way of talking about mental health is the mostly absurd, in fact, even more absurd uh, than our history of quote-unquote care. Uh, this third way of looking at mental health issues is looking at the way mental illness has been portrayed in media, particularly in what I hope we would see as the most ridiculous, most fictional aspects of media. Now here, just take as an, as an example, some of the old horror movies about asylums where the, the lightning is cracking around the old Gothic architecture and the movie taglines are things like a plunge into madness and, and all this kind of stuff. Now, obviously these portrayals, to be very clear, these portrayals don't give us any insight whatsoever into actual issues related to mental health. What they give us insight into is a particular way of thinking, a wrong way of thinking, if I haven't been clear enough about that already. It's a way of thinking that tells us a lot about our societal view of these issues and our societal fear of and confusion around these issues a way of thinking that we as, uh, as a society have always nurtured in relation to these ideas. Now, we're going to talk more particularly about these, again, fictional portrayals in the episodes coming up, because like I say, I find them very, very instructive, not about mental health issues, but about the way we tend to instinctively respond to mental health issues. And it lines up very nicely with this larger conversation we're having about what happens when we discredit someone else's rational perspective to some extent, or in some cases, completely. But it is important as we do that to remember that these portrayals are, of course, works of fiction. Fiction that, by the way, can be and have been quite harmful when they are mistaken for fact. And we also must remember in talking about the history of mental health, uh, quote unquote, care that we see when we look back, that that actually also tells us very little about the people who actually experience mental health challenges, but tells us a whole hell of a lot about the kinds of actions that we as a society 
will not only condone, but will actively foster on the basis of our determination about someone else's rational status or lack of rational status as we've been discussing it. Because, and this is exactly why I'm raising this issue in the first place, can we all agree, is it fair to say that when these systems we've created, again, the legal systems, justice systems, educational systems, economic systems, when we think about how these systems interact with an individual with a mental illness, don't we almost immediately presume that the person in question Again, a person with a mental health challenge has at least a little bit less capacity for, pers- for personal choice than another person in the same situation might. Now, even if we think about that with the kindest of intentions, if our mind, mind immediately goes to thinking about how we, we shouldn't hold some people accountable in the same way that uh, for some actions that we would hold someone else accountable, aren't we still basically saying that in this cycle of reason, choice and responsibility, that that cycle is basically very different for folks who we identify as having challenges related to mental health. Putting the scenario as basically as possible, when we regard people as using reason differently than we do, it changes how we presume they ought to be part of these systems. And of course, I don't know you. I don't know your connection to, uh, to, to this field related to mental health. Um, I don't know what your knowledge base is in, in all of this. Now, you might not think any of this. You might not change your presumptions uh, because of your own personal experience in this regard. But I think you'll agree, if you have a background in these, in these issues, if you have experienced these issues, I think you'll agree that it's very clear that many of these systems within our civil society do very markedly change the way they regard people in these situations. Now, if we say it's true for someone who experiences challenges related to mental health, that again, they that these systems just regard them differently, particularly when thinking about this cycle of reason to choice to responsibility. Well, then how true is it when we think about people from different backgrounds, when we think about people of different ethnicities, from different cultures, when we think about people who are or are not housed, when we think about people of different income levels, when we think about people from different professions, I imagine that all of us respond that in our personal lives, in our personal interactions, in our personal thinking, we actively avoid making those kinds of assumptions and presumptions. We actively avoid sort of immediately dropping someone down a scale of rationality or pushing them up a scale of rationality based on some aspect of identity. But at the same time, Would any of us deny that clearly these systems of civil society that we've been talking about here, that they all respond very differently based on a wide variety of identity factors, often to the point that we see that it costs lives. Now, I don't want to go too far down this road right now. What I'm doing, what I'm trying to do, in essence, is redescribing a set of factors that we should all be well aware of, but again, essentially through a different lens, like I was saying before. My purpose in doing so is to create what I believe are valid linkages between these aspects of our day-to-day experience of freedom and these larger philosophical considerations that 
sometimes do seem so abstract and so out of touch with the realities that we understand. Again, these notions of reason and rationality, the exact same scale I'm proposing that we as a society tend to move people up and down for a variety of reasons and under a variety of circumstances, these notions of reason and rationality, of course, as we've discussed, undergird every philosophical notion of freedom that we will discuss in the coming weeks and months. So our purpose here, in part, is to use these notions of reason and rationality in the same way a biologist might use iodine on a slide under a microscope. Now, y'all know what I'm talking about here, right? A biologist wants to examine a cluster of cells, but those cells aren't very distinct in their quote-unquote normal state, so she pops some iodine onto the slide under the microscope, and without changing the fundamental structure of what she sees, it sharpens up the contrast. It heightens the quote-unquote lines that define the structure and give her a way of better examining what is in front of her. So with apologies, if it seems like we're halfway into a topic that I'm now moving on from, rest assured that we will be coming back to these issues again and again and again. But with that, for now, I think we'll call it a podcast. I thank you again for your time and your thoughtfulness and tuning in. I hope to see you next time, and I'm looking forward to it.